You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Genetic ovarian cancer is a problem that affects many women in our country and is continuing to be a challenge both for early detection and for detection in general. Do these high-risk patients have an option and do their families have a way to kind of figure out is there a better option for their concerns? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. I'm your host, author, and Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, Assistant Professor of OBGYN at Northwestern University. And with me is Dr. Diljeet Singh, MD, PhD, and Director of the National Ovarian Cancer Early Detection Program at Northwestern University, and gynec oncologist at the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center. She's also an Assistant Professor at the Feinberg School of Medicine there. Dr. Singh and I are discussing the genetic detection of ovarian cancer and the challenges it proposes. Dr. Singh, welcome to ReachMD. Thanks for having me. So what are the factors that make a woman high risk for ovarian cancer? I know we've talked about this a little before, but who should really consider genetic screening? High risk for ovarian cancer is slightly different than considering genetic screening. But to answer the genetic screening question, the tip-offs that we look for are, one, somebody who has early breast cancer, somebody who has bilateral breast cancer. When we look at family histories, we think about multiple generations being involved with either breast or ovarian cancer. So then specifically, we're talking about looking for people who carry BRCA1 or 2 mutations. The other thing that I always think of, and I, I'd hate to leave out, is that there's also hereditary non-polyposis colon cancer. So looking at families with colon prostate, colon, GI cancers, ovary cancer, and endometrial cancer, where the two more common ones are colon and endometrial, but there's a substantial risk of ovary cancer as well. So family history is just very, very important. The vast majority of people who actually get tested for inherited predispositions, unfortunately, already have cancer. Generally, they have breast cancer and they got breast cancer early. So sort of being able to pay attention to people's family history prior to their cancer diagnosis would really help in terms of preventing those breast cancers. What would be some of the benefit of those patients having a genetic testing done for them or for their family? So for me, I think knowledge is power. And with the knowledge that somebody has a higher risk for cancer, there are substantial preventive things we can do. As a gynecologic oncologist, my focus is ovary and endometrial cancers. But just to speak briefly to breast cancer prevention, there are options. There's different screening. People might incorporate every six-month screening. People might have MRIs incorporated into their evaluation. People might consider taking tamoxifen or other cancer preventives. Um, and then people might consider surgery. People might consider mastectomy. In ovary cancer, being screened and then identified as somebody who has a high risk of ovarian cancer, and with BRCA1, we think of the risk as being somewhere between 10 and 45 percent, maybe a little higher. With BRCA2, the risk is a little low, probably 10 to 30 percent. But both of those, unfortunately, the risk is high enough, and we don't, unfortunately, have a great screening test. We don't have a mammogram or an MRI for ovarian cancer um, that's reliable at picking up early-stage cancer. And so right now, our options are really limited. In people who are still having kids, we do recommend pelvic exams with rectovaginal exams every six months combined with ultrasound and CA125. There was a study of genetic carriers 
that unfortunately showed that those tests weren't effective and that the cancers they picked up were more advanced cancers. After childbearing is complete, we're currently recommending that people have their fallopian tubes and ovaries removed because when people carry BRCA mutations, these inherited predispositions actually predispose people to not just ovary cancer but fallopian tube cancer also. And kind of in that vein, they probably are also predisposed to something called primary peritoneal cancer, which is essentially ovary or fallopian tube cancer. It looks the same under a microscope, has the same histologic subtypes, but happens in women either outside of their tubes or ovaries or when their tubes and ovaries have been removed. And the rate in the general population isn't even measurable, really. It's under a percent. It's probably under a quarter percent. But the rate in BRCA mutation carriers is about 25 so in the patients who undergo prophylactic bilateral cell pingoophorectomy, how do you suggest following those patients postoperatively for the continued risk for primary peritoneal cancer? So this is very, very controversial. And just sort of as a, you know, word issue, I kind of like the term risk reducing when I say risk reducing surgeries because not everybody who carries a mutation gets cancer. And so we aren't actually preventing them from getting cancer. We're just decreasing their risk substantially, knowing that their risk wasn't 100% to start with. So someone who has a risk-reducing BSO, very controversial. The gynecologic oncology group national study that was done and now is closed following these women, kind of after much discussion, ultimately elected to follow these women with CA125s and pelvic exams every six months. I don't think that's unreasonable because obviously in someone whose ovaries are out, who's menopausal, they have less false positives on CA125. So while we might not pick up a lot of disease, while it might not be a cost-effective way to look at it, given it's the only thing we have now and that the risk of false positives and unnecessary surgery has gone down, I think it's a reasonable thing, and that's what we're doing at Northwestern. You brought up a couple of very important points, especially the one that removing the ovaries, removing the breast and mastectomy does not completely negate the risk of ovarian cancer or things like it or breast cancer concomitantly, and that we have to continue to follow those patients with whatever modalities we have available, for sure. If someone has been at risk for ovarian cancer, are there preventive measures we can recommend that reduce their overall cancer risk? So depending on how high somebody's risk of ovarian cancer is, there's some things that are relatively benign, so to speak, but might have less impact. For example, vitamin D probably decreases the risk of breast, prostate, colon, and ovarian cancer and is a relatively easy supplement to take, and we recommend between 1,000 and 1,200 international units a day. Oral contraceptives, clear-cut, strong prevention, 8 to 10% per year of use, probably a 30 to 50% a decrease in the risk of ovarian cancer in the general user with over five years of use. The tricky thing, of course, with oral contraceptives, you have to pick the patients appropriately, and if they have risks of DVT, et cetera, are not eligible for oral contraceptives, it shouldn't be considered. The other things that we don't generally think of but are probably protective are things like breastfeeding, tubal ligation has about a 30% decreased risk, and then we don't really think about having kids in order to protect from giving ovarian cancer, and I don't recommend it, but it is a protective factor. You're listening to Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lisa Mizzullo, and today I am speaking with gynecological oncologist Dr. Diljeet Singh, and we're talking about genetic ovarian cancer. So in these patients, these younger patients who are getting BRCA testing, BRCA1 and 2, and then find out they're positive, are there any non-surgical ways that they can help to reduce their risk of cancer in the future if they find out they are positive? So the traditional sort of ways of thinking about this are, it seems like the protective factors that impact on ovary cancer in general and breast cancer in general also impact on cancers associated with mutations. So the traditional protective factors, having kids, having been on oral contraceptives, tubal ligation, seem to confer protection also in women who have an inherited predisposition gets a little tangled because there remains some 
a sort of a small gray zone around breast cancer and whether or not oral contraceptives increase the risk of breast cancer. The vast majority of the data says it does not impact on the risk, but it's probably not a no-brainer, so to speak, that it's probably worth a conversation. On the other hand, oral contraceptives decrease the risk of ovarian cancer in the general population by 8 to 10% per year of use. You know, you can decrease your risk between 30 and 50% with five years of use. I mean, that's incredible in terms of numbers. There's very few things that have that kind of effectiveness. I actually think it's the only proactive thing we have in cancer prevention right now other than tobacco cessation and, you know, that actually is a medication we can use other than tamoxifen and breast cancer. You know, there's some evidence that vitamin D is cancer preventive also for breast, ovary, prostate, colon. And given that vitamin D is good for your bones, given that it's relatively easy to get in safe forms, and given that it's hard to take too much, um, that's the other thing that I currently recommend, that people take between 1,000 and 1,200 international units of vitamin D. The tricky things around vitamin D are it's unclear whether or not serum tests for vitamin D that are low are really accurate or are good measures. Um, but that's something worth discussing with your individual physician. Are there any other alternative tests you would recommend for patients at high risk of ovarian cancer or their families if they're refusing or unable to get BRCA1 and 2 testing? You know, that becomes a really individualized discussion. You know, what we'll usually do is sit down with a genetics counselor and the family tree and sort of try to figure out what a person's actual risk is. If the risk is substantial that they carry an inherited predisposition, for example, their mother had breast cancer at age 40 and died of ovarian cancer at age 50, then the risk of the person's mother having carried an inherited predisposition is substantial. Any child in that family has a 50% chance of getting it. And in that case, prevention with surgery, with bilateral salpingu might be reasonable. Currently, the NCI recommendations are for ultrasound, pelvic exam with a rectovaginal exam, and um, CA-125 every six months. Although, again, those tests don't seem to pick up cancer as early as we'd like in terms of really increasing cure rates. If people are concerned about BRCA1 and 2, I've often heard my patients are concerned about it because of the ethical or political situation. For example, they're concerned disability health insurance may be withheld, life insurance may not be possible. Is there any protection for those patients if they undergo BRCA testing? So there is protection currently in place. Part of the American Disabilities Act seems to extend to this conversation. And that's why I like the term risk-reducing instead of prophylactic, because then it's like anything else. It's just an elevated risk. But there are no legal precedences of people losing their insurance or their health insurance or life insurance based on these. Currently, there's a law going through Congress that hasn't been passed yet, but is very specific language to this issue. And I really look forward to that time because I think, you know, fear of lack of coverage should not be the reason that people don't have access to potential for prevention. And, you know, the prevention I'm talking about, some of it's extreme, you know, castration. Taking out somebody's tubes and ovaries is relatively extreme and doing it at the age that we currently recommend, which is after childbearing is complete or at latest 40, I mean, then you're talking about substantially increasing a risk of bone disease and heart disease. So to me, to only offer sort of a severe prevention when really maybe someone's risk is only 50-50 because we're doing it based on their maternal or paternal history, you know, ideally people would be willing to get tested and we could very specifically target our interventions. Do you think that there is any role for hormone replacement in these patients after they have undergone risk-reducing surgery? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the benefit of bilateral salpingophorectomy is twofold. One, and substantially by 90-plus percent decreasing your risk of ovary fallopian tubes slash primary peritoneal cancers. Two, you substantially actually decrease the risk of breast cancer. You decrease the risk of breast cancer by about 50 percent. 
So lots of people will talk about, you know, does giving hormone replacement therapy increase those risks? And it's a relatively complicated question. You've got to look at everybody individually and someone who has a diagnosis of breast cancer that led to their genetic testing, it might not be an option. On the other hand, those women might be on aromatase inhibitors or tamoxifen or other things, or, you know, hormonal suppression might be part of their therapy for their breast cancer. But in somebody who has their tubes and ovaries out, in general, I've advocated for hormone replacement therapy that, you know, varies estrogen alone versus estrogen progesterone, depending on what surgery they had and whether they still have a uterus and are at risk for endometrial cancer. In general, I have that discussion in conjunction with a breast cancer physician who's taking care of that patient and will talk out the issues. There's ways to tailor things that are preventive. Just recently, someone's been doing some research and using tamoxifen with hormone replacement therapy in the general population. And I think all of those things are going to be kind of exciting options for women Thank you so much, Dr. Singh. We're discussing genetic ovarian cancer and the challenges of choosing to test, what to do with that information. And in this day and age, our lack of good screening tools to help these women find early detection really has led to this genetic evaluation being a choice very difficult for patients and for doctors, but one that I think will continue to evolve to a more clear answer for all of the people involved. I'm your host, author, and Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, assistant professor of OBGYN at Northwestern University. You've been listening to Advances on Women's Health at ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.